Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We're so glad you've joined us today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. You all will be very pleased to know that Vice is reporting, Japan is using a robotic monster wolf to scare bears away from people's houses. Cool. <laughs> There's cool. a lot of animals in that. It's a monster wolf to scare bears. Away from people's houses. That's absolutely okay. right. So if all you right. had this on your 2020 bingo card, go ahead and check <laughs> it off. <laughs> on Japan's northernmost island of Hokkaido, one town has installed a robot monster wolf to protect residents from encroaching bears. It's basically a scarecrow wolf that is equipped with a motion sensor that, when tripped, spurs the metallic beast into a red, LED-eyed, howling sequence. And if you can, I highly recommend visiting the article <laughs> because it's got a picture of this robotic wolf that is so derpy it looks adorable i mean it's got like this rubber or silicone kind of face and its snout is kind of bent a little bit in the picture but it's got these red glowing eyes it's got kind of a ruff of fur around it it looks more like a chupacabra than a wolf i'll be honest <laughs> it was a joint project between hokkaido-based machinery from otaseki Hokkaido University and the Tokyo University of Agriculture. And the bots were first placed on Hokkaido farmland in 2016 to fend off wolves and other predators from livestock. So now there are actually 62 monster wolves all across Japan. <laughs> but Takikawa's recent installation is the first that was designed to protect humans. So these things aren't, they're not straight up patrolling. They're like in Correct. one place, like those Halloween decorations where you get too close and it's like, <laughs> That's exactly right. Hopefully okay. it has a scarier sound and right, the glowing right. red eyes to signify <laughs> danger. As Yuji Ota, the head of Otaseki, said in an interview, we want to let the bears know human settlements aren't where you live and help with the coexistence of bears and people. <laughs> <laughs> so this particular machine has worked in wildlife management before. It's a rather new science, but robots are enhancing global conservation efforts. I mean, not necessarily this monster wolf, but robotics are responsible for swimming the depths to pick up trash. We're also using technology to monitor biodiversity and environmental health, as well as reduce illegal exploitation of wildlife and reduce human and wildlife conflict. So this particular town has just more than 36,500 residents, and bear sightings were extremely rare. There was usually one sighting every few years. But this year, since the end of May, there have been 10 in this town alone. Hmm. So the Takikawa officials have placed a four-foot-long, three-foot-high scarecrow, uh, this monster wolf, in a neighborhood just outside the city center, and it will remain there until hibernation season begins at the end of November, so coming up pretty soon. And the robots have proven themselves useful in fending off boars and deers and crop fields, but the trial is still out on how they're going to fare with the bears. I don't know. I feel like bears are pretty smart. Like, I think it's going to work for a while, but eventually they're going to figure out, oh, that thing doesn't hurt me. It just makes a lot of noise. I'm yeah, going to go right past it. this may be a temporary it. situation, but mm -hmm. it's certainly an upgrade for what they have been doing. Yumi Angrini, a former resident of the Hokkaido town Sapporo and an avid hiker, mentioned that hiking in Hokkaido, especially places with bear sightings, requires bringing a bear bell. 
and it is not for amateur hikers. So I have no idea what a bear bell sounds like, but to your point, they're smart. Maybe they've acclimated and now it just signals, hey, there's a human here. Yeah, that's yum, the yum, yum. That's the dinner bell right now is what it is. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you want to have a negative association with that whole Pavlov thing, I'm not sure the ringing of a bell is really going to be the deterrent you want it to be. Next link. Next, next link. link. Okay, this next article comes to us from narratively.com and it's titled The Distinguished Medieval Penis Investigators. <laughs> Distinguished indeed. Yes. So, uh I think a content warning is implied, but I'll make it explicit right. that uh we'll be talking about penises quite a bit. There is no intercourse, in fact that is the specific issue being talked about here. So, let's dive into it. So, <laughs> In 14th century England, one of the only ways a woman could actually get a divorce was if her husband was impotent, but first she had to prove it in court. Oh, no. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So, in the year 1370, Tedia Lamherd filed for divorce from John Saunderson, claiming that her husband was impotent, and fortunately for her, she actually had eyewitnesses. Whoa, uh, what? One, How? Yeah. <laughs> one key witness, Thomas, son of Stephen testified in church court that he had seen the couple unsuccessfully attempting to have sex in John's father's barn before <gasps> nine o'clock one springtime morning. Oh, dear. Uh, in spite of the fact that John and Tedia were, quote, applying themselves with zeal to the work of carnal intercourse, <laughs> Thomas reported that he saw, quote, John's rod was lowered and in no way rising or becoming erect. Oh well, and at first and, thing in the morning, if you can't manage it then, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and furthermore, Thomas claimed that John's brother also witnessed the failed sexual encounter, adding that the brother stroked John's penis with his hand in order to see if he could help. Oh, so this was like a whole on group affair. Yeah. I, I don't know what was the situation exactly, but um, outrageous as it seems, this case of Lambert versus Saunderson is actually one of multiple late medieval English annulment cases on record that focus on the question of impotence, which is still grounds for divorce in plenty of places today, including parts of the U.S. Medieval historian Bronick Kane examines some of these cases in Impotence and Virginity in the Late Medieval Ecclesiastical Court of York, noting how physical inspections of genitals and breasts by the defendant's friends and neighbors were used to determine impotence, virginity, and pregnancy in church court cases. Oh, wow. Often the witnesses in these cases were women, which would either be married female acquaintances, widows, or local sex workers, and they might be tasked by the court with inspecting the man's genital equipment, or they might even expose themselves to the allegedly impotent man, give him ale, tasty snacks, kiss him, and rub his penis in a warm room to see whether he became aroused or not. Oh my goodness. But other times, these witnesses were men who looked on as the husband in question tried to have sex, or even lent a hand and stroked his penis themselves, and would report their findings to the court. Wow. <laughs> Impotence was a really pressing concern for men and women in late medieval England, and there's multiple poems from the time that feature women gathering in groups over copious amounts of alcohol and complaining about their impotent husbands, comparing their flaccid penises to maggots, snails, and bumblebees. 
Oh, <laughs> that last one's kind of cute, though. Yeah, yeah, you know, sick burn in a cute <laughs> way. <laughs> other poems are voiced by the men themselves who mourn their impotence and offer advice to others about preserving their virility. Uh, one poet laments, All ye lovers take heed of me, for I was once as lusty as ye. <laughs> So So, basically, these are older men who are just getting tired. I mean, they're not like 18-year-olds getting a lap dance in a courtroom and unable to (laughs) to perform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's unclear on the specific ages, but considering that you know that if you're impotent, everybody is going to get involved, maybe that makes the problem worse? Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Yeah. The performance anxiety alone of having your neighbors around, I mean... Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and this is all speculation on my part, to be clear. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) Guy de Chaliak, an influential physician and noted medical authority of the time, recommended that impotence be treated with spices, hot oils, and vigorous penile rubbing in front of a fire made of wood chips. (laughs) And he noted... That male physicians were often commissioned as expert witnesses in divorce cases and suggested that they examine the generative members of the accused man carefully before ordering him to go to bed with a sexually experienced woman and interviewing her afterward. (laughs) So when Catherine Barlay filed to annul her marriage to William Barton due to impotence in 1433, more than a dozen people gave testimonies about William's penis after examining it on numerous occasions. (laughs) So after three men and several women inspected William at a tavern called the Swan, one Robert Lincoln testified that William placed his manly rod in his hand, (laughs) and Lincoln described it as long and large enough to have carnal coupling with any woman alive. (laughs) (laughs) What a wingman. He paid off that witness. He's like, look, man, I need you. (laughs) (laughs) I got you, bro. That's right. On another evening, three men examined William's secret manly members at a friend's house. They also gave his penis rave reviews, often comparing it to their own. (laughs) One One testified that he himself had fathered ten children and that William's was better in length and girth than my rod ever was. (laughs) Another one... reported that William Barden had large and fit testicles and other signs of virility, just as I myself ever had or better. I mean, what a great way for everybody to brag about their own junk. Well, and it sounds like they're really conflating size with potency. I think that's a fallacy, no pun intended, (laughs) that a lot of us still subscribe to, even in present day. Probably, but Mm -hmm. we don't go to court to argue about it. (laughs) (laughs) No, we do not. And so they actually got into specific measurements with Barden's penis as well. Two witnesses testified that his penis was two handfuls long when erect, <laughs> and the handful was not an uncommon measurement during this time. <laughs> One poem features a man who boasts that his penis is a handful and a half in length. Um, which, yeah. See, that's a problem because I use that expression as like, oh, that's a handful and a half, meaning something's difficult. But now I'm never going to be able to say that no. again. <laughs> you can never refer to children having a lot of energy as being a handful that's ever right. again. <laughs> yeah. Some women had less glowing comments about his genitalia, supporting the wife's accusation of impotence. But Robert Lincoln countered that these particular women had handled William's penis too roughly with such cold hands that on account of shame, his rod retracted itself into William's body. 
William Barton's rod was such a contentious issue that it even divided one married couple. Catherine Mickelson claimed that his rod was of no value, but her husband, John, testified that this assessment was contrary to his sight and knowledge and promised to make his wife confess her penal perjury to their <laughs> priest as soon as possible. Uh, unfortunately, with many of these medieval cases, there's unfortunately no record of who won the case. Aww. But... In addition to being scandalous and sexually explicit, these cases actually demonstrate that medieval people spoke frankly and openly about their sex lives in a way that we may not have imagined. And nowadays, the idea of filing for divorce on the grounds of impotence actually isn't as medieval as we might think. It's still a part of divorce law in some states today, including mm -hmm. Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, Massachusetts, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Georgia. Oh, I'm so glad Texas is not on that list. I was waiting. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. oh man, come on, it's gotta be. But today's courts are a little bit more prudent in their examinations, uh, requiring unhappy couples to submit medical documentation rather than see the evidence for themselves firsthand. And that doctor's probably not getting in there with his hands trying to determine. He's like, you know, <laughs> yes. being a little more. I don't know. I don't know how you would test that if you're like, I mean, you go to your doctor and you say, I have this. And the doctor's like, OK, let's prescribe some things. But if you're going, going like, I need to prove, like, how good is that doctor going to be? If, like, I take your word for it or no, we need to, like, really confirm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, I guess there's a follow up article that we'll have to read about. Yeah, that. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one is short and sweet, but with an emphasis on the sweet. Uh, it comes from <laughs> Discover Magazine. It's called Animals That Sleep the Least and the Most. Oh, yeah. The major scientific takeaway is that we still don't know a dang thing about sleep. Every time we think we know something about sleep, there is an animal that defies it. So, for example, a recent study in the journal Nature seems to indicate that the most general basic function of sleep is to repair DNA damage in the brain. But in 2017, scientists proved that the upside down jellyfish does sleep and it has no brainstem or nervous system at all. So whatever the oh. upside down jellyfish is doing while it's sleeping, it's definitely not repairing its non-existent brain. Huh. But they go through a bunch of other animals in the category of least sleepers. The nominees are first the giraffe, which studies have shown sleep somewhere between 30 minutes to four and a half hours per day. One of the reasons it's hard to measure for giraffes is because the way they sleep is to take dozens or even hundreds of tiny little power naps throughout the day that are each just a few minutes wow. long. They doze off, they come back, and they never lay down because their legs are so long, it's actually really difficult for them to get down and get up off the ground, which would make them ripe for predators, I guess. Second, we have the elephant. Researchers who tracked two free-roaming African elephants found that they slept only two hours a day. They, too, like the giraffe sleep standing up, although sometimes, researchers noted, they will catch them leaning up against a tree to take a little weight off. Aww. The article noted that both the elephant and giraffe numbers are in wild animals, that sleep patterns in captive animals change dramatically. And it's a little hard to say whether that is a good thing because they're no longer constantly on alert for predators or whether it's a bad thing because it's basically a sign of depression that they're trapped in these circuses or wherever. But the winner of the least sleep in animals is unclear because we start getting into arguments over what exactly constitutes sleep, right? So one likely contender is dolphins, which have been proven to sleep unihemispherically, meaning one half of their brain goes into slow wave processing while the other half stays awake. They Whoa. never truly go to sleep, but they just sort of shut off one half and then they shut off the other half. 
I mean, are they are they still? Do they float? Like no, yeah, they're still swimming. They're still moving around. Like you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell. They had to put, I guess, EEG electrodes on the dolphins to figure out that this was happening. The other animal commonly thought to take the crown is the bullfrog, which were claimed in a 1967 study to never sleep at all. But the way they supposedly proved it at the time was to electrically shock them and then point to the fact that the bullfrog's reaction time to being shocked didn't change at any time during the day or night. So uh, modern researchers are kind of saying you should take that one with a grain of salt. We're really not sure. But also no one has stepped up and done another bullfrog sleeping study with, I guess, teeny tiny electrodes. So they're just not sure. Now on to my favorite category, the most sleepers, the highly adorable group. (laughs) All of the big cats do pretty well in this category. Male lions Mm -hmm. and tigers both sleep about 20 hours a day. Females only sleep 15 Mm because they're the hunters and and they're just, Mm -hmm. you know, they got more things to do. Mm -hmm. Brown and black bears are a little hard to categorize because they sleep normally during the summer season when they're awake, but they also sleep for eight months straight when they hibernate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the absolute laziest of all by far is the koala, which sleeps 18 to 22 hours per day. Which, you know, I got to respect that. I'm I'm a little jealous. (laughs) They clearly don't have a lot of things to do. They're not super busy. (laughs) But Tom Stolf, president and CEO of the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, says at the end of the day, it's all about adaptation. Lions sleep 20 hours a day largely because they can get away with it. Whereas (laughs) animals like giraffes have to stay awake all the time because otherwise they'll get eaten by lions. Mm -hmm. So even when we're trying to determine what is sleep and how much are they really sleeping, a lot of it has to do with their ongoing environment. And as we see with the circus animals, that can change. So Mm -hmm. basically there's no answers, but there's some cute pictures of animals sleeping and that (laughs) makes it worth it. (laughs) I really like to imagine dolphins just going about their day Half the time, they're like really analytical and logical. And the other half of the time, they're just vibing, you know, just like hanging out, thinking about art. That's right. (laughs) You imagine if humans were able to like zonk out just a little bit like that, where you go up and you start a conversation and only about halfway through do you realize, oh, hang on, he's not really all there. Like I'm not (laughs) having a real conversation. I could see some real benefits to just shutting off half of the brain while still just kind of like being functional. Mm -hmm. That seems like a really economical way to use brain power. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, and you got to think half the tasks we have to do during the day don't need your whole brain. Right. Like, really, you can clean the kitchen with half a brain. You don't need the whole thing. (laughs) And cleaning was the first thing that came to mind. Like, I could keep up with so much more housework if I were just, like, going through the moment. But, I mean, that's kind of what doing housework does for me anyway. I kind of get in this, like, meditative, I'm not using my big brain that much that I think of. That's right. They've done some studies on flow, like the flow state that your brain gets into and it's like super healthy and it's sort of kind of like sleep but not really it's good for cleaning out the gunk i guess in there (laughs) (laughs) next link next Next link. link All right. A little bit of happy good news to kind of pepper things up this week. The BBC is reporting that Chris Nickich has become the first person with Down syndrome to finish an Ironman triathlon. Wow. Those are tough. They are super tough. And he's only 21 years old. 
He's from Florida. He swam 2.4 miles, cycled 112 miles, and ran a 26.2-mile marathon, less than 14 minutes under the official cutoff time. So he is now in the Guinness Book of World Records. Awesome. There was some footage circulating on social media of uh, Chris's father helping put running shoes on his son's feet, while, as the article notes, his voice broke with pride and told him, you are almost an Iron Man, buddy. You're two-thirds of an Iron Man. Wow. He had some cuts on his knees from a minor bike crash earlier in the day, but he did the whole rest of it, completing the marathon leg in darkness in six hours and 18 minutes. Oh, wow. I know, right? So intense. And his journey to the finish line had started three years ago when his father noticed his son was becoming increasingly sedentary. Hmm. And so his father encouraged him just to become 1% fitter each day. And the training began with a single (laughs) push-up. Do one push-up and then you can go back to the TV today. That's right. And then tomorrow we do two. So like, that's my scale. That's how I need to start. (laughs) (laughs) But it's amazing. They've got a picture of him where he has a t-shirt that says 1% better. Um, I think his dad or somebody acted as a guide to kind of help him through it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Guinness World Records called his achievement awe-inspiring. He has 33,000 new followers on Instagram. Mm. And he noted, goal set and achieved, time to set a new and bigger goal for 2021. He now has his eyes set on being part of the 2022 Special Olympics, which will take place in Orlando, Florida. And he even got a little recognition from tennis legend Billie Jean King, who tweeted, no limits, no boundaries. Keep dreaming big and going for it, Chris. That's fantastic. (laughs) It really drives home the fact that the rest of us have no excuses. Exactly. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Yeah. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from jstore.org, and it's titled, Do Sunspots Explain Global Recession, War, or Famine? Do they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're going to find that's out. That's getting real close to astrology there, but I'm assuming there's some science behind it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's yeah, electromagnetic absolutely. wackiness, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So William Henry Jevons was one of the forgotten fathers of modern economics and, in a way, of astronomy. He was a brilliant statistician and philosopher who lived in Victorian England and pioneered early theories of resource depletion and macroeconomics. And in the late 1870s, Jevons amassed a wealth of data suggesting a connection between a decline in sunspots, of all things, and an increase in crop failures, which would lead to market downturns. And he traced this correlation back to the infamous South Sea bubble of 1720, which was the first major financial crash of a modern stock market. Mm. Today, NASA predicts we are entering a solar minimum, or a period when sunspots, which are activity on the sun's surface, which are often visible through a telescope, decrease significantly. The sun can be likened to an enormous nuclear reactor producing literally tens of thousands of atomic bombs of energy per second in solar flares. And sunspots move in these 11-year cycles. And it's a cyclical dynamic that's led a surprising number of influential thinkers to connect them to patterns in our own economy and environment. Hmm. Essentially, the way it works is as ionized gases and energetic particles suddenly ejected from the sun bathe the earth, they hit wires, transformers, and switching equipment, which can cause scrambles as a result. And this could cause the wholesale failure of networks that provide energy, water, and food. This might seem like the stuff of science fiction, but governments are actually taking this seriously and trying to prepare for Hmm. it. For example, in 2011, the UK added extreme space weather events to its national risk assessment alongside terrorism, global warming, and pandemics. 
And based on findings suggesting that solar superstorms could actually destroy critical satellite and electrical grid infrastructure and disturb GPS, high-frequency communications, and terrestrial broadcasting, the Royal Academy of Engineering lobbied in 2013 for the creation of a space weather board to monitor and forecast solar activity. Wow. I mean, water, food, infrastructure, sure. But yeah, if my Wi-Fi goes out, we're going to riot. Like there's, there's, there's no getting over that. Yeah, very true. So it, it's a serious risk that we need to start thinking Put about funding now. on that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in 2015, the U.S.'s National Security Council's Interagency Swarm Task Force, or Space Weather Operations Research and Mitigation, released a national space weather strategy. And in October 2016, President Obama signed Executive Order 13744, which ties solar forecasting to the nation's security. So research continues to build better models of sunspot activity and to understand its effects on seemingly unrelated aspects of our environment and economy. And traditionally, terrestrial topics like fluctuations in seasonal rainfall have been correlated to the rhythm of sunspot cycles. Judith Lean of the Naval Research Laboratory's Sun-Earth System Research anticipates increasing public attention on how solar activity affects our everyday lives. Lean expects that space weather forecasting will ultimately blend seamlessly with that of meteorological weather, hmm. which I think is pretty fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you yeah. said at the beginning that we're at like a, a bottom, right? We're at the low point right now. So mm-hmm. things are going to start getting better. Is that the promise? So, no, we're approaching a bottom. Oh, okay. So we <laughs> yeah, haven't hit rock bottom yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're entering the solar minimum, unfortunately. Oh, so no. we've got some time to go. <laughs> oh. Well, let's move on from that. Right, on that uh, note. <laughs> next link. <laughs> next link. Next link. Next link. <laughs> Uh, well, this one is a little more hopeful. It's from Popular Mechanics. It's called The Future of Farming is Inside This Bomb Shelter. Hmm. And it's a profile of an underground hydroponic farm that just might save us all. <gasps> so they would like to say, and that's what the marketing says. <laughs> it's called, quite logically, Growing Underground is the name of the business. And it's the brainchild of entrepreneurs Richard Ballard and Steve Dring. There are several features that make this more than just your average underground hydroponic farm. First, it's located in the heart of London, 108 feet below the main streets of Clapham, which is a suburb there. One of the keys to being truly sustainable is to eliminate the transportation aspect of agriculture, because even a short trip across the country on an 18-wheeler is enough to wipe out any benefit that your fancy sustainable garden might have had. Mm -hmm. But even if you start by assuming you'll go underground, you can't just dig up these major urban areas. But Ballard and Dring struck upon the idea of using old bomb shelters from World War II which were installed literally everywhere in the city of London and are still being rediscovered there all the time. They've Hmm. forgotten about most of these things. Next, by keeping the farm in a tightly closed system that isn't affected by the weather, they can obviously grow all year long, but they can also reclaim and recycle more than half of the water they use. And most critically, they can completely prevent contamination from outside pests and pathogens. Mm. So to enter the farm, visitors have to remove all jewelry, put on a hairnet or a beard net as necessary, cover up all their clothes with a little hazmat suit with rubber boots, wash their hands, sanitize their hands, and then also sign a form asserting that they are in good health, have never carried typhoid, and are not bringing any nuts onto the site. Hmm. So they are quite serious about keeping this place clean, like a clean room, but it means that they don't have to use pesticides of any kind. 
Not even fancy organic pesticides. Nothing. They're just absolutely sterile in there, and the plants grow like gangbusters. Nice. Wow. Yeah. The third feature, and this one is my personal favorite, is that through careful experimentation, they have hacked the lighting inside the farm down to the absolute ideal combination of wavelengths. And it's bright pink. So (laughs) the entire farm is bathed in this light like some sort of emo rave. It's amazing. (laughs) What they actually are is Spectrum AP673L LEDs from a company called Valoya of Finland. And they utilize a red-far-red spectrum ratio that targets specific photoreceptors on the plant leaf that delays the flowering of herbs and allows the plant to focus all of its energy into fast biomass development. Ballard notes, our pea shoots can be harvested up to 60 times in a year. Outdoors, you get three or four harvests of those in a year. In a greenhouse, around 30. So, I mean, they are just churning out at least the pea shoots. Which, you know, are edible. I don't know that everybody wants to be eating pea shoots all the time every day, but certainly (laughs) there's enough demand for it to keep them in business. Yeah. In addition, the electrical power to the garden comes from a local company using renewables to generate that electricity. Nice. And the only waste in the entire process is the seed beds, which are themselves made of recycled carpeting and are then, once they're used, sent to cell chip which is a waste-to-energy converter in southeast London. And they don't make it clear what that is, but I think they just burn it Mm. and capture the burned-off energy. I'm not sure. Hmm. But they're able to use 70% less water than conventional farming. Nice. And, of course, it goes without saying that everything in this farm is automated with a little sensor above Mm. each tray that records data about the temperature and the humidity. And all that is then fed into a machine learning platform to refine which plants grow best under which conditions. Nice. So, I mean, they have just thrown everything they have at this underground garden, and it seems to be working out really well. Wow. Last year, they sold more than 100 tons of pea shoots, garlic chives, cilantro, broccoli, wasabi mustard, arugula, fennel, red mustard, pink stem radishes, watercress, sunflower shoots, and salad leaves. They note... Larger veggies like carrots are not quite profitable yet, though they could grow them quite easily, Mm -hmm. but they're tinkering with the light spectrum for those plants to see if they can increase the yield just a little further. Mm. You know, you might have different colored rooms by the time they're done with all this. (laughs) So lovely. And in the meantime, they're making a lot of money, but they're also able to supplant their sales by offering public tours of the facility. Smart. Both from just random people or interested chefs or investors. They're bringing people through there all the time. So it's cool. It's hopeful. And they're not alone. There are similar startups running in underground locations in South Korea, Tokyo, New York City, and Germany. And I can say I've actually been to something similar in New York City. This was way back before the world fell apart. We went there and visited this place called Farm One, where there's like a restaurant up above. And then underneath in the basement is where they grow all of these herbs. And for them, it's less about feeding the world and more about like these really rare, exquisite microgreens that these fancy chefs like to use. Mm -hmm. And part of the tour was like they would let you taste stuff. So they would take these little Mm. little clippers and like snip off a leaf and let you just eat it. And they truly were really, really good. It tasted more cilantro-y than cilantro, I guess. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but it was very cool. And actually, and one of the really amazing things was they had this rare plant from, I can't remember what it was called, and I want to say it was from Peru, but it was, it, it tasted electrical. What? It didn't have a flavor. There was some sort of chemical compound in it. And she warned us. She was like, you don't have to eat this if you don't want to because it will be not what you're expecting. Like, have you ever licked a battery? 
that is what it tasted like. And it lasted for probably 30 minutes. Wow. What? Wait, what? Yeah. Like, it was electrical. Like, it was zapping your taste buds wait, and it lasted so for a really long time. It was a flavor and not just a sensation? Well, I mean, I guess it was a sensation, but it was caused by eating this little leaf. It was like just one tiny little leaf and you chew it up and then your whole mouth is tingling for 30 minutes. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, you know, for all I know, they're actually just growing drugs down there. And this was <laughs> their, their way of getting people hooked. But it was really fascinating. And she said, yeah, there's not that many chefs who use this and you have to use tiny amounts of it. But they, they said there's some uh, weird avant-garde chefs out right. there. Right, like, like the yeah, gastropubs where they're making green apple caviar or whatever else. To... Right, That's right. In, I'm so curious. 30 minutes seems like a long time to commit to like a tongue trip like that, though. Yeah, 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 it was. And I mean, and it faded over time. It wasn't mm-hmm. full intensity the whole time. But it was the last thing we tasted. And she's like, now I'm going to try to warn you. <laughs> Taste it if you want or don't. But you need to understand what you're getting into. And it really was a completely unique experience. It didn't, yeah, I've never had anything like that before. So I just looked it up and the leaf that you're referring to is Acamella Oleracea, I believe, or okay. Electric Daisy. Yeah, you mean like the carnival, it. like the Electric Daisy Carnival? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that sounds like a street drug. I'm not gonna lie. Like, <laughs> yeah, other names are uh, Szechuan buttons, Buzz buttons, Ting flowers, and toothache plant. Oh, yeah, I guess it would kind of numb stuff, maybe. That would be interesting. Yeah. I have to get my hands on one of these electric leaves. I am. I know that's kind of a tangent from your article, but I am captivated. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, now I got to order one online. Yeah. Well, this, this place sells them. I don't think they'll ship them because I think you have to, like, go there and get it in person. Because that's one of the things they talked about is, like, this stuff can go from being clipped out of its tray, living to on a plate in less than four hours. They wow. they have really, really fast turnaround for some of these chefs. So it's a hopeful thing for the future if we can manage to pull it off. <laughs> I believe. I believe. That's right. Next link. Next link. Gizmodo is pleased to tell us that microbes can mine valuable elements from rocks in space. Put those little suckers to work, man. They've had a free ride for too long. That's right. <laughs> some recent experiments aboard the International Space Station have shown that some microbes can harvest valuable rare earth elements even when exposed to microgravity conditions. So we'll need a new hmm. updated like asteroid mining movie, but on a micro scale instead of Ben Affleck now. Is I think yeah, let, let's pick at. somebody else. We don't need Ben Affleck this time. <laughs> so we've shown that on Earth, some microscopic organisms have been able to extract rare earth elements or rees from rocks. And this new experimental evidence published today in Nature Communications shows that when it comes to leaching reeds from rocks, at least one strain of bacteria is largely unaffected by microgravity and low gravity conditions. So this is potentially good news for future space explorers as biomining microbes could provide a means for acquiring rees while in space, on the moon, or even on Mars. Hmm. Most of us know that rees are vitally important for the manufacturing of commercial electronic components like the stuff we have in our smartphone and the production of alloys. But the problem is not so much that they're rare, but they're just really difficult to mine and extract, which makes them, as Gizmodo quotes, a serious pain in the ass. (laughs) In addition to the increased mining and refining costs, the harvesting of these elements is both ecologically and environmentally unfriendly. And in the insatiable quest to obtain them, it often results in civil strife, which is why you may sometimes hear them referred to as conflict minerals. But we Mm. don't have any good substitutes for them, which is why we are now recruiting microbes to help in a technique known as biomining. And the way that they work is that the microbes produce sugars that bind to the reeds. 
and this causes the elements to concentrate together, which makes the extraction easier. But in order to determine if biomining is possible off Earth, an experiment was set up in the International Space Station in which microbes can be exposed to microgravity and low gravity conditions. Low gravity is known to reduce the settling of microbes and so reduce the mixing and flow of nutrients to microbes and waste away from them. Three different bacteria were used in the experiment, and they measured the extraction efficiency of the microbes when exposed to three different conditions, microgravity, Mars gravity, and Earth gravity. Well, but we have Earth gravity here. <laughs> Why did we have to put it up in space and then simulate Earth gravity? Well, I mean, I guess they wanted to see if it could go from one to the next. But yeah, it was, that part, seems... it, it was the control experiment to make comparisons, right? Like, yes, right. we can do it on Earth, but in order to do it in space, you have to have the control for the experimentation conditions. But good question. I guess. Science. <laughs> Science <laughs> and your, your need of a baseline. Womp, womp. <laughs> uh, but the bacterium that worked was not bothered by any of the three gravitational environments, and it displayed 70% extraction efficiency for the Rees, cerium, and neodymium. The other two bacteria had poor or no ability at all when exposed to any of the experimental conditions. And when they wanted to know why this particular bacterium did so well, they think it's because this bacterium produces lots of long-chain sugars that have multiple binding sites on them that bound the rare earth elements, and the other microbes did not. So... They're wondering whether the other microbes might be stimulated into doing biomining by the stressful conditions of lack of nutrients and microgravity, which is why we sent them. But microgravity did not change their ability or allow them to biomine. Uh, if you can't evolve <laughs> fast enough, you're dead, man. That being said, the scientists could produce genetically engineered versions because mm. science. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> um, it's an important first step, but we're well on our way to putting these microbes to work because, as you say, they've had a free ride for too long. <laughs> yeah, but then they're going to start to unionize. It's going to be a whole thing. Like... I'm sure the scientists will genetically engineer that out of them because that's right that's right <laughs> genetically After engineer all, the desire that's right the, the humans are in charge of the genetic engineering at this point that's right. so <laughs> <laughs> all right well that is all we have time for today we're so glad you've joined us many of the articles on damninteresting.com we did not have a chance to get to some of those articles include laser guided lightning may help prevent wildfires researchers trap electrons to create elusive crystal and the women who resisted the Nazis in Britain's Channel Islands. So all that and more, plus all the articles we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. We greatly appreciate your support. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wayceford Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>